focus on the headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio are reporters Yusumin and Cheji He. Guys, welcome back. Good evening, Esther. We're going to talk numbers, uh, specifically money and exchange rate here. Uh, this is could be concerning for many people out there. Inflation, high oil. Now we're looking at the greenback, very strong against the South Korean won, which means, again, in other words, South Korean won is uh, far weaker against the greenback here. The South Korean won surpassing 1,300 level against the dollar for the first time in 13 years. Uh, give us the latest updates on this, Sumin. Yeah, so South Korea's currency, Korean won, fell below the 1,301 level against the U.S. dollars for the very first time in about 13 years. So in other words, the $1 exchange rate topped the psychological barrier of 1,301 mark for the very first time, posting a sharp depreciation of Korean won. So on the Seoul foreign exchange, the local currency was trading at 1,300.41 against the dollar at 9.19 a.m. It closed at 1,000. 301.81, which is up 4.51 from the previous trading day. So the $1 rate exceeded the mark during trading for the first time in 12 years and 11 months since July 14th in 2009 when it hit 1,303.1 against the dollar. So it comes as investors search for safe haven assets after U.S. federal Reserve Jerome Powell acknowledged that a recession is possible, which of course Jihee will tell us in detail later on. So with worries over a global recession, the Korean won has slid around 8% against the dollar so far this year alone. So won's fall definitely a very alarming issue because it might intensify the upward inflationary pressure because it boosts import prices. Although usually weaker won tends to play a positive role in exports, but that yeah. unfortunately might not be the case because it's not just a weak Korean won we are seeing, we are seeing weak yen and some other currencies as well. So, as I said, apparently there are high concerns of a global recession among experts and finance analysts. So this is the reason why Finance Minister Chu Gyeong-ho made a sort of a verbal intervention earlier today that he will deter further decline of the South Korean won. He said that Forex authorities will take steps to stabilize the currency market and if needed to minimize market jitters caused by the won's weakness. He also said that the South Korean government will simultaneously seek policy-based solutions to ease supply and demand imbalances in the market. And addressing the reasons for such sharp depreciation of the Korean won, the finance minister said that won has continuously been depreciating against the dollar because many countries have been expediting monetary tightening policies because inflation, as we know, is just sweeping across the world. Yeah, I remember uh, before the pandemic, uh, because I look at the, uh, the foreign exchange quite a bit, uh, it was at one point something like uh, 1,080 Korean won mm. per dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it was kind of, even if it goes up, it was kind of hovering around the 1,100 range. Yeah. Uh, which means that even with, at 1,200, everyone was like, uh-oh, uh, the Korean won's getting too weak. Now we're looking right. at 1,300. I do remember the last time I've seen something as high as this, uh, back in 2002 when I came to Korea <laughs> as a high schooler, it was at 1,400 oh, uh, no. at the time. But uh, I mean, the, the economic situation back then was uh, a little bit different here with Obviously, the greenback would be stronger. Uh, U.S. Federal Reserve Jerome Powell mentioning this possibility of economic recession 
As uh, Sumin mentioned briefly, this has an after effect of the Fed's efforts to curb inflation. Let's hear more about what he said uh, before the Senate Banking Committee. Jihee, you have more on this. Right. So Jerome Powell testified at a moment of rapid inflation, of course, and rising interest rates before the Senate Banking Committee on the 22nd. Uh, there, he said, although the Fed is, of course, not trying to provoke a recession, the interest rate heights intended to restore price st stability may possibly lead to an economic slowdown in the country. However, he also said the American economy is well positioned to withstand higher interest rates, as he had said will happen in the future again, and that the central bank might be able to lower rapid inflation without making America suffer a painful downturn. And at the same time, he did caution that pulling it off would be, quote-unquote, very challenging to achieve, and that a recession is, quote-unquote, certainly a possibility. Now, Powell added that the Fed thinks it's it's essential to restore price stability for the benefit of the labor market and said inflation has to be down to 2%. Well, a week ago on the 15th, the Fed ordered the largest interest rate increase of 0.75 percentage points. Uh, we call that the giant step right. since 1994. And the central bank is under growing pressure to combat inflation because it hit a four-decade height of 8.6% in May. Now, Mr. Powell's uh, latest remark regarding the possibility of an economic downturn is quite different from the stances of uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden and the cabinet because during an interview with AP last week, President Biden said the U.S. economy is stronger than any other country in the world in a solid position to overcome inflation. Uh, and he said an economic recession wasn't something inevitable. But then Powell said during his testimony, quote unquote, we do understand the full scope of the problem and we're using our tools to address it uh, pretty rigor vigorously now. And he also said said achieving the goal of trying to stabilize prices without causing a recession has been made significantly more challenging by all the events of the past few months and cited the supply disruptions coming from shutdowns in China as well as the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, that have in fact pushed prices even higher. Still, he said that the Fed needs to do what it can do to rein in price increases because the other risk is that price stability is not restored, then high inflation will become entrenched in the economy, hurting low-income people more than anyone else. And he said the Fed is doing its best not to amplify the current level of uncertainty in a time when circumstances are extremely challenging and complex. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we go over to other news, uh, diplomacy and security-related news this time. U.S. State Department posting its integrated country strategy on its website on Wednesday, uh, manifesting U.S. mission in South Korea's goals and objectives. This is quite interesting. Uh, Sumi, let's get more on this. Sure. So what is an integrated country strategy? So it refers to a four-year strategic plan that basically articulates the whole of government priorities. Well, the U.S. State Department listed the goals of its embassy here in South Korea in that 18-page handout, which are to strengthen the U.S.-South Korean alliance, pursue the denuclearization of the uh, Korean peninsula of North Korea, and also to enhance bilateral economic cooperation. Well, in the document, it said that they will work to reduce the threat posed by Pyongyang and also to achieve the denuclearization of North Korea. And as a crucial component of collective security against North Korea, it said that the U.S. mission will build trilateral 
bilateral security cooperation among the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, and also for economic partnership to counter China's ascent, for example, especially in the semiconductor industry. Now, the document also highlighted the two countries' economic alliance, of course, against China, indicating economic cooperation is the second goal of its U.S. embassy in South Korea. So the integrated strategy stated that South Korea has been improving its export control against U.S. and its investment monitoring system and that the South Korean conglomerates are expanding their investment in establishing resilient and stable supply chains, especially for semiconductors, high-performance batteries, rare minerals, and biopharmaceuticals. And it also said if there is a setback in strengthening economic cooperation between the two countries, it noted that the U.S. might have to rely on countries like China, which of course do not share its values and will not be able to take lead in major technologies again, uh, highlighting the importance of economic cooperation between U.S. and South Korea. Quite interesting here. But the one that kind of stood out for me is the fact that uh, despite all the things that are happening right now, the tensions with North Korea, that they still put in the uh, the, in the, the achieving denuclearization of North, North Korea, Korea as one of their key goals still, right? But again, I mean, you know, the, we, we say this over and over again. The ball is in North Korea's court right now. I think the United States and South Korea, I mean, they've been trying to strike any kind of talks with North Korea. They're just not bulging whatsoever. So uh, in the meantime, another thing we've been looking forward to uh, quite a bit just next week, NATO summit uh, with President Yoon Sagara having been announced his plans to participate here. He will, of course, be the first South Korean president to take part in this NATO summit. The U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price commenting on the uh, attendance of President Yoon Sagyar and uh, at the uh, NATO summit. So tell us uh, what was discussed here, uh, Sumin. Yeah, sure. So South Korea is not a member of the military alliance of the NATO alliance, but has been invited as a partner nation along with countries like Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. So as President Yoon Song-yeol, just like Esther has mentioned, is planning to attend the NATO summit in Madrid next week. When the U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price was asked about Seoul's potential role at the summit as a non-member state, he said, despite the lack of membership, South Korea is an important partner of NATO and of individual allies. So basically emphasizing that South Korea is an important ally of the United States. Now noting that it will be the second time in recent months that an Indo-Pacific partner has joined a NATO meeting, Price said that there are a number of shared challenges ranging from China to cybersecurity issues and emerging technology. Well, another thing that stood out was that he said what the U.S. seeks to uphold in the Indo-Pacific region with South Korea and what NATO seeks in Europe are precisely the same, which is rules-based order that that has led to unprecedented levels of stability and prosperity. So he also referred to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an attack on that rules-based order. He noted that assault threatens not only Ukraine, but the entire world and added that very threat is why the U.S. and of course the Indo-Pacific partners have stood up to that aggression, regardless of the geopolitical location and geographical location, whether it be Europe and the Indo-Pacific region. And lastly, also added that the U.S. Secretary of State Tony Anthony Blinken is looking forward to having discussions with the allies in the Indo-Pacific region, just like President Joe Biden, who recently returned from his visit to the two Asian allies. While on the sidelines of the NATO gathering, President Yoon Suk-yeol could hold a trilateral summit with U.S. President Joe Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Uh, Yang Gurum uh, chiming in our live YouTube uh, for the first time saying nothing related to me. Uh, he said, uh, if South Korea does take part in the NATO summit, 
as in President Yoon suk uh, the relations with China is going to get uh, a bit uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, is what I mean, it's true. And not to mention, the thing that, because I read this news early this morning and what Ned Price said, you know, the different uh, challenges that South Korea and the NATO uh, member uh, countries share. He said, uh, Russia, China and security and then putting China in there and I think right now the UN administration what they've been doing they've been doing a good job in balancing this relationship with China yeah. although that you know they said they were going to be me, most uh, experts were saying oh they're going to be more hawkish against China mm. The consensus is, I mean, yes, you could be consensus, but you can't be too hawkish mm. uh, in that you go, oh, we don't want to deal with China is our enemy. Uh, China mm. has it. They weren't going to come out like this. I, I no. think so far they've been doing a good job balancing it out in that they're, yes, their ties with the U.S. is stronger right now, but they're still going with China. Yes, I mean, our bilateral relations are very, uh, you know, important as well. And ours, us being part of IPEF has nothing to do with us going against China. And then mm -hmm. Ned Price goes, uh, the challenges that, uh, we face together as China, and so it puts kind of it puts South Korea kind of in a in a difficult situation, yes. right? Uh, but I think the consensus, not only with uh, uh, China but Russia, it does seem like right now. Again, I keep using the term teams forming, mm -hmm. uh, but I think the the reason why these countries have been all the uh, Asia Pacific countries have been invited is because of Russia related issue, and obviously uh, China as well. Uh, another thing to look forward to the the 14th BRICS summit, uh, hosted by China, being held virtually tonight. Uh, much attention is on whether China and Russia try to use the summit as a platform to build a new camp against the U.S. and Western states. So now you have the NATO summit, uh, which is going to kind of go against Russia and China. Now the BRICS summit, where you're going, okay, everyone else. So I, this is, to me, very scary. But Chihi, let's get more on this. Sure. So it is expected that Chinese President Xi Jinping will call for a joint response to the participating nations against the U.S. and the allies while presiding over the summit of the BRICS nations. Now, Russian President Vladimir Putin will uh, be joining via video, and he is also expected to criticize the U.S. and its Western allies for supporting Ukraine and is likely to request cooperation from the BRICS nations. And some also speculate that China and Russia may attempt to even create a new camp by including some other developing, new developing countries as well. However, Bloomberg reported that India, which is a member of the BRICS as well as the U.S.-led Quad, may uh, hold a more neutral stance. So it was reported that India would resist the anti-U.S. messaging from China and Russia at the BRICS summit, and Indian negotiators will look to prevent any attempts by China and Russia to use the summit to score a, a propaganda victory against the U.S. and its allies. Meanwhile, the BRICS bloc, uh, including Brazil, Russia, India, and China, was formed in 2009 and was joined by South Africa in 2010. And tonight, Tonight's virtual summit will be held under the theme of, quote-unquote, foster high-quality BRICS partnership, usher in a new era for global development. Uh, well, the initial purpose of the BRICS summit of discussing and deliberating on common issues for all developing countries set aside, the platform is expected to provide Beijing with a timely chance to promote its vision for how international relations should be conducted. Yeah, I, I always found the found the India being part of BRICS quite interesting mm -hmm. because, as you know, um, India and China are not the best of allies, uh, best of friends here. But uh, which is why you're saying that India might be kind of uh, neutral. more neutral yeah. on mm -hmm. this front, right? Uh, in the meantime, Chinese President Xi Jinping warning about the expanding military alliance among the country in a speech before the virtual BRICS summit. Uh, tell us what he said, Sumin. 
Yeah, so Beijing will be hosting the meeting of the influential group of BRICS emerging countries, emerging economies like Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa, just like Jihee said. And President Xi Jinping told the at the BRICS Business Forum that the Ukraine crisis is, quote-unquote, a wake-up call and warned against expanding military alliances and seeking one's own security at the expense of other countries' security. Well, if you remember, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin had a phone call last week, and during the phone call, President Xi Jinping assured his Russian counterpart that China would support Moscow's core interests in sovereignty and security, and yesterday's speech basically essentially aligns and reinforces his original stance. So in the speech on Wednesday, President Xi Jinping decried the U.S. and European Union sanctions on Russia, saying that, quote-unquote, sanctions are a boomerang and a double-edged sword. Well, experts are saying that BRICS gives a sort of a platform for Putin to stand with leaders from emerging countries like Brazil and India, and it sends a message to the United States and the EU that they have not succeeded in completely isolating him and Russia. We do know that the leaders of the group of seven nations, the G7 summit, will be uh, held next week in Germany. That's to discuss how to proceed with sanctions against Russia and also during the NATO summit, similar issues will be brought up. So, you know, just like Esther mentioned, the world is becoming increasingly divided at this Oh, man. Um, Guys, let's talk about what you guys think about these different major summits right now being used as platforms for, I mean, let's face it, it, there's definitely clear political purposes right now. You have the NATO summit, which is, again, not only being attended by only NATO members, Mm. right? Uh, I believe uh, Ukraine is also invited to the uh, the NATO summit as one. Then you have mm-hmm. South Korea, Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. And then you have the BRICS summit. What do you guys think? Let's start off with you, Chihi. Well, I don't know what to say because they're really using these platforms uh, to, for example, the U.S. and uh, China and Russia. You, you talked a lot about how uh, the world is making groups amongst yeah. them uh, amongst themselves, right? And they're really using these summits, which are supposed to be platforms for for example, BRICS, developing countries to share common concerns and really to help them uh, develop in different aspects. They're being used for China and Russia to group, make their allies and make um, different developing countries and other countries be on their side against their fight against the U.S. and its allies. And it really reminds me of the whole dynamic, really reminds me of like old Korean dramas, you know, like uh, they have these different groups, blocks, like gangs, and they're fighting with like, each like, other. Like, like Yain Shide? <laughs> yeah, something like that, really. <laughs> or like even like old school related dramas. Right. They have like friends, yeah. um, you know, how groups right, right. among themselves. So it really seems, I don't know, is, is the world going the right way, really? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it scares me not, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that's actually yeah. a very good uh, word you used. Uh, it's scary, mm, uh, it's to be scary, honest with yeah. you. Uh, Sumi, what about yourself? Your thoughts? on all these different summits. I know. Um, well, I mean, it's pretty telling, isn't it? BRICS, I believe, is essentially a China-led united front against other Western nations. Obviously, if we look at the member countries' actions after the Ukraine war, China and India have both ramped up crude oil imports from Russia, so basically to help offset the losses from Western nations that are obviously scaling back their Russian energy purchases. And I saw this 
uh, data from a research firm called Rheinstadt Energy. It showed that India bought six times more Russian oil from March to May this year compared with the same period last year, while imports by China during that period also tripled. And South Africa, uh, also a member of the BRICS uh club has not condemned Russian military action. Three of its members, China, India, South Africa, excluding Brazil in this case, have abstained from voting on a United Nations resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And China also said at a BRICS foreign ministers meeting in May that it wants some other emerging countries to join the grouping to the BRICS grouping. So it's basically seen as a move to reshuffle the world order, the rule-based world order, what the you know, that price had said previously to pressure Western countries. And, you know, just like I said, especially after the Ukraine war, I feel like the world is increasingly becoming divided. So another Cold War front is being formulated. Definitely a highly concerning, alarming situation happening at this point. I'm really concerned. Uh, concerned, yeah. Let me, let me tell you why I'm like really scared about this. Uh, because when first you know, this whole team forming thing, I mentioned this last year, I said this is a start of something that could be huge, right? Mm -hmm. So before it was like Russia and China, like we knew there were teams and then you have the United States and those, the Western allies and so forth. And then the war in Ukraine, that got me really scared because mm -hmm. if you go into the history books, right, if you go to World War II, how World War II started, it started off with the, the Nazi Germany invading Poland. Mm. Okay, and then there was teams forming, and then that's when the World War II started. Mm. World War One was a little bit different. Uh, Archduke of Austria, uh, Archduke of Franz Ferdinand, I mean, he was assassinated, and then uh, Austria, you know, waged war against Serbia, and that that led to. It's a little bit different with that, but if you go into like World War Two, right? It led. It started off with an invasion of Germany to Poland. Mm. And what we're seeing is Russia invading Ukraine. And then yeah. notice all the other teams are kind of going, mm. okay, we're, we're picking, we're going to side with Ukraine. Now yeah. we're going to side with Russia and we're doing this. Luckily, so far, what we've been seeing is only like assistance, like non-direct, indirect assistance from some of these countries so far. Mm, yeah. But if there is a military assistance going on, like actual soldiers going in place, all these countries know that's going to spark World War Three. Mm. But this summit that we're seeing right now, now this kind of solidifies the teams that are forming. It's almost like, all right, we have our team set. You know, before we, the thing that Chi said, uh, you know, you have like the guys lining up. Yeah, <laughs> two different schools are ready to fight. Yeah. They have the team set right now. Mm. Okay, I think this summit, the NATO summit and the BRICS summit is kind of like that right now. Mm. They're lined up right mm. now. All it's going to take is one person to go, I declare war, and then boom, this is World War III. Um, to me, that's scary. And I believe one of our listeners, uh, I, I think, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, I think your ID is like disoriented space whale or something <laughs> like that. He said that Br uh, one of the British generals had said they are ready to go against war against R Russia. Mm. That to me is super scary. Okay, mm. then if the British go in, you think other countries aren't going to go in and then, you know, Russia starts doing other stuff. China might get involved. That's World War Three. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be the biggest war in scale. World War Two, World War One. It's going to be nothing compared to what World War Three is. That's why I'm scared right now. Uh, the teams forming, this is a scary thing. And these, boy, I, I, I'm going to have to, man, I'm going to watch the BRICS Summit now. Um, <laughs> um, concerns are real right now, ladies mm, and gentlemen. Yeah. We're hoping that uh, any kind of conflict on any scale uh, is going to be over. But uh, some of the experts are saying that this uh, war in Ukraine might be prolonged for years, uh, which... Oh, please. 
It's, oh, yeah, uh, it's terrible. Uh, in the meantime, North Korea reportedly added missions and uh, revised uh, operational plans of frontline military units during this latest uh, major party meeting that they've been holding. There are also speculations that North may deploy tactical nuclear weapons in frontline artillery units. Gee, let's get the details of this. Sure. So according to the North State Media Korean Central News Agency, the work of additionally confirming the operational duties of the frontline units of the Korean People's Army and uh, also modifying the operational operation plans was discussed during their second day session of the third meeting of the 8th Central Military Commission of the Workers' Party of Korea. Now, among others, the issues related to reorganizing key military organization formations were on the agenda, and the KCNA also reported that regarding adopting important military measures to enhance the operational capabilities of the frontline units, Kim Jong-un, a North Korean leader, stressed the importance of this work and clarified all the principles, tasks, and ways for implementing it. And Chief of the General Staff of the KPA, Lee Tae-sop, apparently delivered a presentation in front of the North Korean leader using a military map of the eastern region as well as the East Sea. Now, the details of the added mission and revised operational plans were not revealed by the media outlet. And regarding the new tactical guided weapon that the North test fired in April, it stated that the weapon has great significance in enhancing the efficiency in the operation of tactical nukes of the DPRK and diversification of their firepower missions. And the latest party meeting has drawn much attention from the international community as it could hint as to uh, when the, give us a hint as to when the North will proceed with what would be its nuclear experiment in more than four years despite repeated warnings from the the outside world. And it remains unconfirmed when this meeting session will end. Uh, it's discussing many different things, apparently, but the state media is expected to release reports on the final results of the meeting. Yeah, I think um, also the consensus is that uh, the reason why they're holding this meeting mm -hmm. is in line with now they're preparing for this nuclear test, right? Mm -hmm. Because, it, it, you know, North Korea is, you know, they're not just a a fool where they're just gonna test nuclear weapons and mm -hmm. ah that was fun and that's it <laughs> they know things are gonna happen if they do test their nuclear weapons yeah. so there's a lot of discussions are gonna be holding right now okay so let's say we do test our seventh nuclear test and then now there's gonna be new fresh uh, UN Security Council sanctions in place where China and Russia probably they're forced to not veto this time around and so if new Frank uh, sanctions are gonna be put how are we gonna deal with this and so mm -hmm. forth and so I I'm sure these are all being uh, in discussion right now and as you know uh, as uh, even Victor Cha has mentioned before, they like conducting certain provocations during U.S. holidays. Right. Mm -hmm. What's coming up next? Independence, Independence Day. Day, 4th of July. July. Yeah, yeah, that's coming up in about, uh, what is it, a week and a half from mm. now. Um, and so now a lot of people are saying, well, I mean, there is a very good big yeah. possibility that they might conduct this nuclear weapons test come July 4th. And so, again, I mean, uh, we've seen just too much activity in the Pungari uh, nuclear test site, uh, all those tunnels, uh, you know, being opened and so forth. Uh, so I, this is the other concern right now. I, I think in the many years that I've been uh, reading news and covering news, I, I, there's never been so much instability in the world yeah. right now, uh, to be honest with you. I know. In all fronts. Economy, yeah. Ukraine, yeah. Uh, rest of the fronts, world, yes. North Korea, and then monkeypox. Uh, more tragic news uh, this time over in Afghanistan, as if uh, things can't get worse. As you know, uh, some of the worst medical facilities, infrastructures in that country, which, by the way, now even worse with the takeover by Taliban not too long ago. 
country was rocked by its deadliest earthquake in decades uh, Wednesday local time resulting in more than a thousand people dead dying more than a thousand five hundred injured as well uh, what do we know so far about this earthquake and the damage that it caused so far Sumin? Yeah, so that happened shortly after 1.30 local time on Wednesday in Afghanistan as people slept. A magnitude 6.1 earthquake struck Afghanistan's eastern part of the region. So consolidating announcement of the ruling Taliban and the major global media outlets, the earthquake has killed at least 1,000 people and injured 1,500 in eastern Afghanistan. Well, of course, tolls are expected to rise with remote villages like Gien being one of the worst hit and they are not included in this official tally just mm. yet. Now, it is the deadliest earthquake to strike Afghanistan in two decades and, of course, a major challenge for the Taliban, which regained power last year after the Afghan government collapsed. Well, tremors were felt as far away as Pakistan and India. Witnesses reported feeling the quake in both Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, Pakistan's capital as well, Islamabad, and even in India as well. So a local journalist told the BBC News that every street you go, you hear mourning and Jeez. in houses were in rubbles, dead bodies were wrapped in mere blankets. And it's especially devastating for Afghanistan because it's already undergoing severe hunger, economic crisis, That's of right. course. So most of the casualties so far have been in the Gayan and Bamal districts in Paktika. Nearly 2,000 homes reportedly were also destroyed and scores of people were displayed. That's according to the United Nations. And also as the average number of people, households per household amounts to at least seven to eight in Afghanistan and some families even live together in a single establishment. The extent, the range of damage could be much greater than what had been reported so far. So UN Security uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Wednesday local time that he was saddened by the tragic loss of life in the earthquake. The UN's Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reports over the past decade, more than 7,000 people have been killed in earthquakes in the country in Afghanistan, and there are an average of 560 deaths a year from earthquakes. And most recently, some back-to-back -back earthquakes in the yeah. country's west in January killed more than 20 people, and that destroyed hundreds of houses. So this particular earthquake that happened yesterday, it's more powerful and perhaps more deadlier than other earthquakes that happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, you know, earthquakes happen in many different parts of the world. Uh, obviously, you know, Japan also being a very uh, earthquake-prone country as well. But, I mean, we're talking about a country that ha is well-prepared for earthquakes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you know how the architecture of Japan is. I mean, yeah. they, they literally build buildings so that it can withstand yeah. earthquakes. Uh, even, like, these houses that are, like, hundreds of years old. They're able to they withstand uh, earthquakes, yes. but you go into some of the developing countries, it, it's it's completely different. Mm. Uh, I forget where it was, uh, another major earthquake that took place in one of these South American countries. It was devastating as well. But continuing with the uh, Afghan news, uh, again, this is the deadliest quake in the country since 2002. So we're talking about two decades, 20 years. Experts are saying there are several reasons uh, Afghanistan was especially vulnerable to the disaster and why the damage is actually worsening. So, Chi, tell us about this. 
Right. So uh, this, this, in fact, like you said, is the seventh earthquake that killed more than 100 people. So it is really the deadliest in two decades. Yeah. And Afghanistan has a long history of earthquakes, uh, many in the mountainous Hindu Kush region bordering Pakistan. And the country is particularly vulnerable to earthquakes because it's where the Eurasian and the Arabian and the Indian tectonic plates meet. Mm. And it's also on the Alpine belt. And that's the expanse of mountain range that is also prone to mm. earthquake activity. And death tolls have been worsened by the remote locations of many quakes and decades of war as well that have left infrastructure in dangerous conditions. And most homes are also made of soil brick, making them easier to mm. collapse. And like you said, Japan has very strong infrastructure. Most of their buildings are uh, earthquake-proof or they can withstand earthquakes. Right. But the houses here, the buildings here are not, nothing like that. And the latest earthquake also occurred early in the morning or late at night after mm-hmm. midnight uh, when most people were still yeah. fall, uh, asleep. And because there's no solid infrastru- infrastructure and concrete houses, and most of them are really, they're, it, they're hard to see uh, in the countryside of Af- Afghanistan. And uh, they could not withstand this very strong earthquake. And because most people were sleeping while this happened, it was impossible for many of them to evacuate or escape the situation. And like Suman said, photos of the catastrophe show bodies covered in blankets because they were sleeping, obviously. And the disaster has posed a new test for the Afghanistan's Taliban rulers as well. The years of ongoing civil war basically ravaged the whole nation and the Taliban's ruling has led to sanctions from the Western states as well. And this has also led to a serious economic crisis for the state. And so the state was really suffering already. Even before the, uh, the quake. And relief agencies are already struggling with the country's multiple humanitarian crises. Mm. And that is why experts are saying rescues and treatment may be tricky this time as well. Uh, But then still humanitarian agencies still operating in the country, including UNICEF, rushed supplies to the quake-stricken areas to help the people who were wounded. And also, uh, the South Korean government recently announced that it will provide Afghanistan with $1 million in emergency humanitarian aid as well. Mm. Yeah, when the uh, the Taliban took over Afghanistan. I mean, the tough thing was Afghanistan was already receiving a lot of uh, humanitarian Mm. assistance financially, but uh, once the Taliban came in power, a lot of it was cut off. Uh, Mm. And so even last year, uh, during the height of the pandemic, it was very concerning. But you're right. I mean, the the timing was pretty off too, Mm. right? When you're talking about two in the morning, I believe it was, uh, when everyone's inside, right? Mm. Uh, Whereas, I mean, if it happened like during daytime, maybe people are outside and stuff like that, I think the casualty numbers would be far lower, but might be going, well, if Afghanistan such an earthquake-prone country. Uh, why not build uh, earthquake-prone uh, buildings? Well, it costs a lot, yeah. right? I mean, the, the economy of Afghanistan and, let's say, Japan is just on the opposite spectrum of each other, and mm-hmm. which is why, like you said, some of these uh, uh, houses built, built in soils and stuff like that. It, it really, which is why anytime uh, you look at, uh, get news of uh, these earthquakes, devastating earthquakes, you hope that it doesn't happen in these developing countries mm-hmm. where you're going to obviously, unfortunately, see uh, more casualties. Yeah. Uh, we'll give you more coverage on this as we get more information. For our uh, reporters today, thank you very much for coming in with your reports and your insights. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys again. See you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.